Welcome to Two-Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, as we continue to mark the fourth anniversary of our show, we're going to revisit another one of my favorite conversations. In January of 2017, we sat down with Tom Johnson to talk about his long career as a leader in American journalism and about his work as a young White House assistant to President Lyndon Johnson. He honed his skills as a young journalist working for his hometown newspaper, The Macon Telegraph. But he went on to serve as a press aide and eventually close confidant to President Lyndon Johnson, and then became one of the country's most respected news industry leaders at the L.A. Times and CNN. Through much of that, Tom kept secret a condition that at times challenged his capacity to keep going day to day. Tom Johnson's personal story and the stories he tells about the people he encountered during his remarkable career are quite simply breathtaking. Tom Johnson, thank you so much for being here for Two Way Street. You once told an interviewer, you said, I found that no matter where you travel, the best question that you can ask another person, particularly if you've never met them, is tell me about yourself. So just briefly, tell me about yourself. Born 1941 in Macon, Georgia. My dad was a, uh, had a third grade education. Uh, my mother had a uh, high school education, but uh, I, uh, I was very fortunate to have a mother who was just unbelievable. She was then and was for much of my life the most important influence on me. I'll never forget, she said it at least a dozen or more times, Tommy, if you work hard and do right, you can accomplish anything you set out to accomplish. You went to Lanier High School in Macon, and uh, I think you were in ninth grade when you recognized that you really had to, given, as you said, your the economic circumstances at home weren't great, you needed to pitch in, you needed to help out in some way. So you tried out for a job as a stringer at the Macon Telegraph. Tell us about that. By 14, it was clear that I needed to uh, provide some support for my mother. My dad was in not good health and uh, rarely uh, worked. Uh, And I just felt this responsibility. I think this word responsibility has been a part of my entire life. But uh, there was a uh, position for a person to come in to bring high school uh, sports scores, baseball, football, basketball. And you were bitten by the bug almost immediately. Almost immediately. Uh, The then crusty sports editor named Sam Glassman uh, took a special interest in me. He said to me, Tommy, the most important lesson I can teach you is to get it right. And that has stuck with me forever. Why do you think you made, and you did, such a big impression on the, your, the workers at the paper and on Peyton Anderson, who was the publisher of the paper tonight? What, what do you, as you look back on that time, think I you I fell had? in love with the news business. I fell in love with the news people. They really mentored me. I worked hard, 
as my mother had suggested, and I tried to do right, which was to be there on time, to meet the deadlines, to work late if I needed to, uh, to work weekends. And, and, and really, I think it was that almost that passion, uh, that love of the work, and my trying to do it really well. Clearly, it made a positive impression on, on not just the sports editor, but the city editor and some of the other editors. They would see me work frequently until 11 o'clock when my mother, after having put in a full day of work, would pick me up uh, uh, because I couldn't drive. I was 14, 15, 16. Uh, but it was, I think, just a awareness that you had here, somebody who loved the profession, enjoyed working, and, uh, and, and, and the word of that got to the publisher, Peyton Edison. Peyton uh, was the owner of the Macon Telegraph. He was a, uh, he, he was a wonderful man, wonderful spirit, uh, had a wonderful sense of humor, but he also believed in providing the type of support to his reporters and editors so they could report independently. He said to us that we always would run daily the information on who was arrested in Macon for DUI, drinking while driving. And he said to us, and that includes if any member of my family is ever arrested for DUI. And there came a night when on the, when on the DUI list was his wife. His wife, really? Mrs. Anderson, was arrested. And there was a hesitation. But we called, and Peyton said, absolutely. So the wife of the publisher's name appeared the next day for having been arrested. That was Peyton Anderson. Well, Peyton Anderson obviously was a, a an incredibly important uh, man in your life. He actually uh, was responsible for your going to the University of Georgia, yes? He was. As uh, my senior near, year at Lanier High in Macon approached, I was asked to go over to Peyton Anderson's uh, office, and he said, uh, Tommy, you've made a good impression on all, all my editors here. If you qualify for admissions to the University of Georgia, I will pay your way. Pay your way provided you continue to work. So I made the uh, weekend trip uh, from Athens to Macon throughout most all my uh, four years at Georgia, and I so love the work. It was almost as though it got better all the time. If, if I can, let's put a time frame around that. I think you started at Georgia in around 1959. I started at Georgia in 1959, uh, and I graduated in 63. Okay. I want to talk about uh, Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes, because that was an incredibly important uh, moment in the history of the university. And in many ways, it was an important moment in your personal development. Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes were the first African-American students to be admitted at UGA. How did that go, Tom? It was very difficult. And I was not only covering the story for the Macon Telegraph, but also I was covering the story for the campus newspaper, The Red and Black. And as a result, I accompanied her with a cluster of reporters as she came through the gates at the university uh, at, and, and followed her. Uh, I was nearby as I saw a student lean forward uh, to try to spit on her. I was there when one of the women who was in the dorm uh, was quoted by a fellow student having said to Charlene, uh, honey, we, uh, we really are so glad you're here. We really needed a maid to clean up uh, these halls. 
But I must tell you, it was a defining moment in my life because I really hadn't experienced it in, in Macon. Seeing the inhumanity almost of, uh, of, of the way in which uh, people were, were treating her. Well, I'm sure it must have been even more difficult for you because I am assuming that it was probably some of your own friends who were among those who were not happy to have two uh, black students on campus, and that must have made it even more troubling. Sadly, some of those were fraternity brothers of mine whose names, incidentally, I published in my, in, in my reporting. That was painful. Fortunately, Georgia did not have the type of violence that took place at uh, at the University of Mississippi. But I should also say that the, the, that the members of the state legislature were on the telephone with students urging them to resist, urging. I mean, here were members of our state legislature yeah. urging, urging resistance to the desegregation. But you, on the other hand, decided that Charlene Hunter, who wanted to be a journalist even then, I think, yes, should uh, come uh, work at the Red and the Black. I did. I urged her to come to work in, at the Red and Black. And if, if I have to sort of say something here maybe that I've rarely said before, I thought that would be a safe harbor for Charlene to come and work uh, with us. But there were some students on the paper who mistreated her, did not welcome her. Fortunately, there were several who did welcome her. Uh, they became lifetime friends, but she did not continue on the campus paper because there were those who still had uh, some of the same prejudices that, that many of us of all, I guess, of, of all career paths had. It must be uh, wonderful for you to reflect now on the career arc that she ended up Having. Well, I take special pride in that, having become a friend. Uh, I also was so pleased that uh, at, at, at a stage in my life when I was chief executive officer of CNN that I could help to recruit her to become the Africa correspondent yeah. Yeah. Uh, for CNN. You uh, graduated from Georgia. Uh, you were determined to go on to uh, uh, get a master's degree, I think, in journalism. But again, Peyton Anderson said, no, 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 no. You've done journalism. What do you want to do with your life, Tom Johnson? Tell me the answer to that, and I'll tell you what I think you ought to do next. I'll never forget his words. I mean, he looked at me and he said, Tommy, what is it you really hope to do with your life? And I guess in a sort of naive way, I said, well, Peyton, Mr. Anderson, I really one day would like to be a publisher like you. And he said, well, uh, you don't need a journalism degree. You've had just about every experience in this newsroom during the years you've worked here and on the campus paper. What you need is a business degree. And he said, if you can be accepted at Harvard Business School, I will pay your way. And you were. I was accepted. Uh, and so I set out to... Uh, secure my business degree at Harvard Business School. And I should also say that uh, by then, I had uh, flipped out for this wonderful college co-ed uh, who I had met uh, at Georgia. Who is Edwina, we Edwina should say. Chastain Edwina Chastain of, of Athens, Georgia, the, the, the daughter of an agricultural extension agent. How long have you been married? 53 years, okay. this December 29. <laughs> but I think it was Edwina who noticed that there was this brand new program uh, in the White House 
the White House Fellows Program. Am I right about that? Yes. Uh, in, in the second year at Harvard Business School, uh, she read a very short item in the New York Times about the White House Fellows Program, which was to bring uh, 15 young women and men to Washington for a year, uh, expose them to the government, and, and hope that they would go back to their professions as a, a better understanding of government, whether we went back as journalists or doctors or lawyers, whatever. And she said, you, can, you should apply for this. And uh, I looked at it and I said, there's absolutely no way that I can ever be chosen. You know, I, by then I had learned that several other Harvard students were applying. But I did apply. And uh, and somehow, some way, uh, I, I, I was accepted for the first class and was chosen by Bill Moyers, the then 31-year-old press secretary to President Johnson, uh, to work for him during my fellowship year. And I'll never forget, when I went into his office the first morning, he said, I want to introduce you to some people around here. And he walked me about, uh, I guess, you know, no more than maybe 20 yards into the Oval Office, and here I meet this overpowering President of the United States, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. This is uh, 1965, except, I think. Except it was August of 65, yes. Do you remember what the President said to you about being an intern? I remember precisely. He said, Tom, we don't have much experience with, uh, with interns or with this program, so we're just going to treat you like a full-time member of the staff. <laughs> Which they did. Which they did. He and President Johnson just continued to place big responsibilities on me. This is a good moment to ask you this question. Have you become really sure of yourself, confident, or did you approach these responsibilities they threw at you um, wondering what the heck they're doing and whether there was any way in the world you could fulfill what they wanted you to? Early during my Macon years, I felt a great sense of insecurity and inferiority. I think because of of what part of town in which we live, in part because I had a dad with a third grade education who virtually never worked. But must tell you, that experience working on the Macon paper, my sense of confidence had continued to build. And I'll never forget when my first byline appeared in the Macon paper on a sports story, and I saw by Tommy Johnson, I had the sense that, well, maybe I'm becoming somebody. We're going to take a short break right now. When we come back, more of one of our favorite conversations, an interview with former CNN president and LBJ White House aide, Tom Johnson. If you're just joining us, we're revisiting one of my favorite conversations of the past four years that Two-Way Street has been on the air. It's an interview with Tom Johnson. He served as president of CNN through its formative years, and earlier as a young man was a close White House aide to President Lyndon Johnson. Let's talk about LBJ. By the time you arrived at the White House, I think I'm correct, the much of the great society legislation was either finished or well underway. The civil rights bills had been passed. A am I right that in many ways what you ended up being part of was uh, the turmoil that he dealt with in terms of Vietnam? Yes. Um, 
most of the Great Society programs had been launched. The war in Southeast Asia had become uh, very, very serious. Uh, we had found that more and more troops would be required. LBJ felt that we had a responsibility under the Southeast Asia Treaty that we had signed to protect South Vietnam from communism, from the aggression uh, that was coming down. And yet he was trapped. Uh, he did not want to destroy the dikes, bomb uh, the cities. Uh, he did not want to either deliberately or accidentally bomb a Soviet or Russian ship in Haiphong Harbor or Hanoi Harbor. So I was there, and I've never seen anybody anguish more than did President Johnson about what to do. He said to me, Tom, I'm damned if I do. I'm damned if I don't. You have said uh, in other interviews that the daily body count was uh, traumatizing. How did that count get delivered? And um, were you there when you'd watch these reports come in? I'm talking, of course, about the body counts of North Vietnamese and uh, American uh, killed. Well, uh, I was really brought in. For a reason I've never been to fully explain, but President Johnson made me the note taker of his most secret meetings. Yes. And I attended these meetings, and again, very limited to seven people, not the full National Security Councils, some members of whom he really didn't trust. The body counts would come in as a part of the daily reports he would get, and it got up to as high as 400 a week, a week. This was so painful, and we were, of course, dropping B-52s on uh, the people in the north. We were, we were using napalm, and you will never forget the, the young girl coming out of a village where she's, where she's running away from napalm, and some of it, I think, had burned her, burned her back. And, of course, the opposition from the students in America, the opposition on the campuses, as we would drive even out of the White House, the loud shouts of, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? I mean, that just racked him. It, it just racked him. Tom, I think you're the one who told President Johnson that Martin Luther King had been shot, right? One of my duties was, was sort of to monitor the wire machines, uh, which were 24 hours. There was an Associated Press, United Press, and a Reuters uh, uh, ticker, uh, and I was standing close to it when when all of the bells went off, and and when all the bells go off for a prolonged period of time, it's indicative of a flash, which is the highest level of alert of a bulletin. I looked at it, saw it, I ripped it off, went through, uh, the, told the president secretaries. Usually, I had to stop and sort of be cleared by the president secretary. I said I must go in, and I walked in to hand the, the note to President Johnson. And sitting with him, one of the great ironies of all time, sitting with him was the then chairman of Coca-Cola, Robert Woodruff, and Carl Sanders, who at that point were representing just the two of them meeting with the president. I he said, was the governor president, of Georgia at that point. And the, 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 letter, the, the message said uh, that Dr. Martin Luther King had been shot in Memphis. It didn't say he'd been killed because he was shot. Uh, but I thought, what, what an ironic situation. And President Johnson at that point started going for the phone to call uh, the then FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, the then uh, uh, Secretary of Defense, the then Attorney General, Ramsey Clark, and others. And, and uh, Mr. Woodruff and Carl Sanders 
were about to get up, they could tell, and LBJ said, no, you can stay here for a while. So they literally witnessed the first 15 to 20 minutes as he mobilized uh, the government. And why that's so important is Robert Woodruff goes over and gets uh, uses one of the White House phones and calls the then mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, Ivan Allen, and says something like this. Ivan, I'm here at the Oval Office with the White House. As you know, Dr. King has been shot. Uh, FBI is reporting there are going to be violence all across America. America could burn tonight. And he said, I know that you're probably going to need additional resources as far as fire and police and whatever. Now, I didn't hear it so precisely that I took down the notes, but he said something very close to this. You do whatever it takes with added fire, added police, whatever, and don't worry about uh, who's going to pay for it. And, of course, Atlanta did not burn. There were not riots in Atlanta. Is it vivid in your mind what LBJ looked like when you handed him that bulletin from the wire service? He just slumped. He slumped. He was sitting in his chair with Governor Sanders on one side on the couch and Mr. Wood on the other, and he just slumped. Incidentally, he signed the the note, the wire note, and gave it to Carl Sanders, and I've been unsuccessful in getting it back from either <laughs> Carl Sanders before he died or from his estate. I have a goal of getting that note uh, back and getting it to the OBJ yeah. library, but I'm not sure I'm going to be successful. Um, on March 31st, 1968, President Johnson mired in Vietnam, more and more protests, more and more members of Congress turning against the war, went on national television to uh, give a speech about Uh, the status of the war in Vietnam. And um, at the end of that speech, uh, out of nowhere, for all of us who were watching that night, he said this. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. But let men everywhere know, however, that a strong and a confident and a vigilant America stands ready tonight to seek an honorable peace and stands ready tonight to defend an honored cause. Tom, the president gave that speech from the Oval Office. Where were you? I was standing inside the Oval Office behind the some of the technical people who were operating the teleprompter and some of the photographers and very few who were there in the room. And I don't think I've ever mentioned this before, but I typed, I did not write, but I typed that final conclusion that was handed to the prompter operators. It was kept ultra, ultra secret. It was, it was a, probably the most closely held uh, decision that I remember. What was the president's demeanor when the cameras were turned off and the lights were uh, dimmed again? Well, Lucy and Linda came over to him and uh, and hugged him, as did Mrs. Johnson. It's When I've said this before, it always seems to not come out right, but I saw almost relief, relief. And later he said, Tom... I'm so glad that I could leave without ever having to push the button. And for that, he meant use nuclear weapons uh, in in any way. And how did you feel? I had opposed his uh, decision. Um, I had uh, 
So I want I wanted him to be able to bring about the peace with uh, with Ho Chi Minh, but, but also I guess I understood because. His health was not good. He had had a major heart attack when he was in the Senate. I had seen him putting nitroglycerin tablets uh, sort of when nobody else could see him, which could relieve the pain, I think. And I knew that Dr. DeBakey and Dr. Cooley had indicated that he was not a candidate for open-heart surgery or transplant the way it was. That was very early uh, in it. I was really sad. Yeah. I cried. It still is an emotional moment for you. I can see it as you talked about it just a moment ago. What's fascinating to me, Tom, is you tell us that you told an interviewer or something that I never knew before. When Johnson went up to the Hill to give his State of the Union address just a couple months earlier. I had typed words that were not that different from the words he delivered on March 31st. That were going to be in, in the State of the Union address. Maybe Five of us thought it was going to be in the State of Union address. I sure thought it was going to be in the State of the Union address. And I asked him later, I said, Mr. President, why didn't you? He said, I concluded that I would become a lame duck and that uh, I wouldn't be able to get any of my programs passed uh, for the remainder of, of that year. Well, he only waited, you know, he waited to end of March, March 31st, uh, to do it. After the uh, Johnson presidency, after he announced he was going to resign, you were all set to come back to Macon. You felt you owed a debt of gratitude to the people who had done so much for you in Macon. And you, uh, in your honorable way, said, I'm going home. I said, Mr. President, I must return to Macon. I have an obligation to Peyton Anderson. I have an obligation to, I mean, he had sent me to the University of Georgia, sent me to Harvard Business School. He was okay in my staying on at the White House, okay with it. Uh, but, but I've never had loyalty put to me in such a personal way. He was so uh, very, very convincing that if I would just go with him and help him for the transition, and, and finally he met with me and Edwin and said, you know, that he just needed us, and we agreed to go. And I must tell you, that was the hardest, that was the hardest message to deliver to Peyton. Uh, Peyton, I, uh, I'm not coming back right now. I'm going to go with President and Mrs. Johnson to Texas. And, of course, you did go back to the ranch. I, I spent, what, four years? I spent two years two in years. the office as, what was the office of the former president as executive assistant, and then two years as executive vice president of his family business. They had radio and television and music and photo processing and banking and cattle, and I, uh, I was a part of that. January 22nd, 1973, Lyndon Johnson passes away. I want to play what I think is a remarkable piece of audio from a television broadcast. Walter Cronkite was literally on the air for CBS Evening News when you picked up the phone to let him know what had just happened. Let's listen to Cronkite. I'm I'm on the air right at the moment. Uh, Can you hold the line just a second? I'm talking to Tom Johnston, the press secretary for Lyndon Johnson, who has reported that uh, the 36th president of the United States died this afternoon in an ambulance plane on the way to San Antonio, where he was taken after being stricken at his ranch. 
And Mrs. Johnson was notified uh, of the events uh, at her office in Austin and flew immediately to San Antonio. And uh, Tom Johnston, uh, no relation, the president's new secretary, has just told me that uh, from Austin. Any other details, Tom? When I called, I called Walter's assistant who knew me. Uh, she put me right over to uh, a producer who put me just almost instantly in, into Walter. He knew my voice. We had worked together on a conversation with the former president that the CBS had done at the ranch. And uh, I said, Walter, uh, President Johnson's just died. He instantly decided to go to air. And I was told it was the first time a live feed was taken to air on, on the CBS Evening News. You were deeply involved in the the rest of the uh, proceedings that took place after he died, yes? It was interesting because uh, the, the, the call had come to me from Mrs. Johnson, and her exact words were, uh, Tom, we did not make it this time. Lyndon is dead. I want you to handle the arrangements and, and make the notifications as we, as, as we had already uh, planned. He was laid to rest in the uh, family cemetery, which is very near the ranch in Johnson City. You dressed him, I believe. I dressed him. What What did he want to be buried in? He had a favorite suit, and he had a favorite tie. We're going to take a short break right now. When we come back, more of one of our favorite conversations, an interview with former CNN president and LBJ White House aide Tom Johnson. Welcome back to Two-Way Street. We're going to continue our conversation with Tom Johnson now. After President Lyndon Johnson's death, Tom stayed on in Texas to manage a former president's businesses, which included a newspaper and a television station. And it was here he came to the attention of Otis Chandler, one of the newspaper visionaries of the 20th century, whose family owned the LA Times, among many other media holdings. Chandler brought Tom to L.A., installed him as publisher, and between the two of them, they made the L.A. Times into one of the most progressive American newspapers of the day. If you want to hear that portion of Tom's story, you'll find it in the extended version of our show, which is online at gpb.org TWS. But for today, we're going to pick up Tom's story as he tells us about meeting Ted Turner. Tom had lost his job at the L.A. Times. He and Otis Chandler were pushed out by conservative members of the Chandler family. It was 1990, and Tom was adrift. And so by 1990, you're back out there looking for a, a, I, I a am job. And I am, and I, and I uh, somebody told me that Warren Buffett said, well, there just aren't many Pope jobs around, <laughs> that Tom was in a Pope job. And then out of the blue, I get this call uh, from Ted Turner, who says, uh, "Would you, would you really become president of CNN?" That was his quote. Would you really become president of CNN? I said, "Well, Ted, uh, you know, you don't know me very well, and I don't know you very well." And he said, "Well, by, by when can you make up your mind?" And I said, "Well, Ted, I really do need to find out more about you, and you need to know a whole lot more about me." And so he ran some due diligence on me. I, tried, I talked to Roberto Gus Weta here in Atlanta. I talked to Jane Fonda. Jane said to me, 
Tom, he's the most remarkable man I've ever known. They were dating at that they point. They were dating. They were dating. He's the most remarkable man I've ever known. I, t- I, t- I talked to, but I also, I talked to Walter Cronkite. I talked to Bill Moyers. And, I, and I, it, it was just, it was amazing. Some people said, Tom, you're sort of a traditional kind of guy. Ted's very unconditional. <laughs> Not sure it'll work. But the more I got to know Ted, I said, this is, in his own way, this is another this is another Otis Chandler. This guy really, really believes it. You have been quoted as saying, Ted is the only genius I've ever met, and I've only used that word to describe one person in my lifetime, and that is Ted Turner. It's just so. Ted has this extra lobe out of which comes these original thoughts, and you go on from there. But yeah. clearly, he made that kind of profound yeah. impact. And on he you is. From the- we have a genius still living among us. And he is the most, uh, he's the most complex genius probably that we will ever know. So you pack your bags. You and Ed Winnick come back to Georgia. You're in Atlanta. And I think maybe a day or two days after you get here, on August 2nd, 1990, this happens. On the morning of August 2nd, thousands of people in Kuwait City woke up to war. Stay away from the window. I was joking. I was part of the building. By mid-morning, thousands of troops had swarmed into the capital. Well, uh, on day two, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. More than anything, there was Ted. Uh, And and I said, Ted, you know, uh, George Bush has said that this will not stand. And I said, he's deployed, he's formed Secretary of State James Baker to meet with Tariq Aziz to negotiate. But if, if they don't work out Saddam coming out of there, there's going to be war. And I said, you told me when you hired me, I said, Ted, what is it that you expect of me? And he said, I expect for it, meaning CNN, to become the best news network on the planet. I said, what else? He said, that's it, pal. I want CNN to become the best news network on the planet. I said, now, if we're going to become the best, I need to lease uh, space on transponders. I need to put in place portable uplinks, uh, ground stations. All of I this need, in Iraq. And, and I said, well, Iraq and Israel, oh, Saudi okay. desert, oh, all, right. all over the region. Gotcha. And I gotcha. said, Ted, how much am I authorized to spend? And I said, it could range from maybe... $8 million over budget to as much as $35 million over budget. Here were his exact words, exact words. He said, you spend whatever you think it takes, pal. That was it. Well, your investment um, in, in that kind of technology, it led to a remarkable evening in uh, television. It was um, mid-January 1991. And on that night in January, you had three correspondents on the uh, top floor of the Al-Rashad Hotel in Baghdad. One of the things they had was something called a four-wire, which allowed them to do what no one else uh, covering that story. As the bombs began falling, American bombs on Baghdad, it allowed them to talk to us around the world about what was happening. 
Now the sirens are sounding for the first time. Hello, Atlanta. Atlanta, this is Holloman. I don't know whether you're able to hear me now or not, but I'm going to continue to talk to you as long as I can. Peter Arnett, John Holloman, and Bernie Shaw uh, on the top floor of the Al-Rashad reporting on the bombing. And you were in the control room at CNN headquarters here yes, when all that also, was happening. And also <clears throat> out there was Robert Weiner. You had as you say, personnel, a producer, three correspondents, rated ground zero, essentially, for um, for an intense American bombardment of, of, of Baghdad. What kind of negotiations, conversations were you able to have to try to help right, well, protect let, them? Let me just say that the most powerful moments of that before it actually took place, uh, I'm in my office, my young assistant, uh, then Ashley comes in, uh, and says uh, the president's press secretary is on the line, Marlon Fitzwater. So I take the call from the president's press secretary, and he basically says, "Get out of Baghdad." And I said, "Marlon, thank you for the call. I hadn't been, I hadn't put that call down for more than maybe thirty minutes." She comes back in, and she said, uh, "General Powell is on the phone, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs," and he said, "Tom, you need to get your people out. Actually, you're compromising my mission. I'll never, never forget that." And I said, "Well, Colin, whom I've known through the White House Fellows Program, I appreciate the call." Then within no more than a half an hour, Ashley comes in and her face is just white. And she says, the president's on the phone. And I think it was Lou Dobbs or somebody in the room who said, the president of what? And she said, President Bush. And I go over and pick up the phone. And there's no White House operator on there. He said, Tom, I know you've been called by Marlon and by Colin. He didn't use their titles. He said, I just want to emphasize the importance of what they had to say to you. And I said, well, Mr. President, I, I appreciate the call. And that was it. I hung up. So I called Ted. He's out at his ranch. I said, Ted, I've now been called by the president's press secretary, by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and just now President Bush. And they basically told us to get our people out of Baghdad, that they're in grave danger. I had reached a conclusion that I should move them either to the outskirts or back to Amman. I had not shared that with anybody, but I, I mean, after you get those kind of three warnings, I didn't, I mean, it was not just losing one or two or three people. I'd lose all of our crew, everybody there. And so what do I have? It was Ted, it was Ted that is responsible for us staying. There was a moment that night as you and all the others involved at CNN in the control room watching uh, this unfold, listening to the feed from Baghdad, uh, the signal dropped. Yeah. Uh, the signal dropped, and my first instinct was that the hotel has been hit. And yet, what turned out to be the case was their battery had died. Their battery had died. <laughs> they had not died. Their battery had died. <clears throat> and they came back on the air. Holman uh, figured out some sort of uh, workaround that got them back on the air. An extraordinary, extraordinary night. You've said that uh, there were two personalities in the world who probably made your career at uh, CNN. One was Saddam Hussein, uh, and the other was the uh, person involved in this news story. Well, that is Cowling's car, and, and that Simpson is in the driver's seat. We've received a report of a gun in the car. The car is heading north, which would be toward Los Angeles. June 17th, 1994, O.J. Simpson on the run from the police. Uh, where were you when that uh, f uh, chase, slow chase began? Well, I'm really sorry, Bill, that you brought this one up. Uh-oh. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, 
we're into Larry King's evening show at nine o'clock, and uh, it just just popped up, you know, and yeah, just like Saddam Hussein brought us record, record, record audience levels, the O.J. Simpson story brought us again off the chart audience levels. And there were times, particularly during the later trial, when we would try to break away from the O.J. Simpson coverage to something really important, like the president speaking out in Colorado after that tragic shooting. And we'd have a meltdown on our phones because people were so locked to the O.J. Simpson Why were you sorry that I brought it up? That's probably why. (laughs) That was not my finest hour because, you know, I tell people, you know, I did write it. I wrote it. The audience was so unbelievably, but that's that's not my form of journalism, and it's sort of the issue with Donald Trump coverage in many ways. It was riveting television, Tom. Is that enough? You know, that is the question. At what point should we show more restraint? At what point should we show more restraint? Should CNN have said less of all the many rallies that Donald Trump had at the beginning of the campaign, which were just giving epic, again, epic uh, audience levels and, uh, and others. I mean, you're satisfying what is clearly a desire on the part of your viewers. They seem to be measured by quantitatively the other way. Plus, you could see you are covering, you're covering something almost that we have not ever seen before in politics. And I think that, again, in the era of today, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, with particularly with, with the situation, police shootings, uh, what appears to be innocent people that being killed. Media has a important role to play in all of this. And I think we need to think more about our uh, tendency to go far greater with the drama and with the powerful, powerful images. Uh, is, is Is that good journalism or is that just pandering to it? It's a big issue, I think, for every journalist today. And it makes me realize that there still is a wonderful place for print uh, to look at things, to put it in more context. I think that's really true. Uh, one more quick story about CNN, uh, because it's a wonderful story. Uh, you had a played a strangely in, instrumental role in uh, helping Mikhail Gorbachev resign uh, from his position in the Soviet Union and essentially to dissolve the Soviet Union. Uh, what does that mean? What am I talking about, Tom? Well, uh, the, the, we knew that uh, there had been this attempt to overthrow uh, Gorbachev by some of the hardliners. He was down at Dhaka. He came back for a while. Of course, Yeltsin threw his support behind uh, Gorbachev. But but uh, there came a point at which it was clear that Gorbachev would resign. Uh, I went to work that morning and was told by Gail Evans and others to pack a bag and get to Moscow as quickly as possible. We believe that Gorbachev is going to resign. Uh, we also understand that ABC is there with Ted Koppel and with Rick Kaplan, uh, and, um, and, and you need to be there. You need to go. You need to do what you can to see if we can't secure this interview, the final interview with Mikhail Gorbachev. And so I jumped on a plane, had a 
crew of people, some of whom were already in Moscow. So uh, we set up. We're in his office. He's made the decision to resign. He has the documents in front of him. He has a, a, a green pen to his right. These documents convey the power of government to Boris Yeltsin. These documents dissolve what was the Soviet Union, dissolve the Soviet Union. And anyway, in preparation with so little time before air, within, we, we were less, I think, than 30 seconds from air, maybe. Uh, he takes this pen and just sort of tries it out, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so he looks over to his aide, Andrei Grachev, and I'm right beyond Grachev, and Grachev does this. That's looking. That's patting your pants pockets, and your and doesn't have it. So I reach in and get out my Mont Blanc uh, pen, and I said, "Mr. President, you may use mine." His response was, "Tom, is it American?" I thought it was the strangest thing. I said, "Mr. President, it's Mont Blanc. I think it's German. I didn't get even the right country." But he said, "In that case, I will use it." I think the fact that he might be using an American-made pen to dissolve the Soviet Union, and literally, we went live to the world. I was able to sneak in an Associated Press photographer and reporter, uh, and that photo won the Pulitzer Prize for that year, showing that pen. And that pen now is on exhibit at the museum in Washington because at the end of it, Gorbachev put it back in his pocket. And I said, Mr. President, may I have my pen back? My <laughs> wife had given me that pen for my birthday. And I didn't really think it, so I started walking out. And I think it was Charlie Caudill, maybe one of my producers, he said, Tom, do you realize you have the pen with which the Soviet Union was dissolved? That is a wonderful story. Um, it has the added benefit of truth. Yeah. Um, Tom, we've, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I, but, but as we kind of come to a close, I would really like to address one other issue that's an important part of your life. And one which I think as people have been listening to you tell these remarkable stories about uh, your career in, uh, in journalism, they'd find it hard to imagine uh, you have struggled with clinical depression uh, virtually your entire life, and it, and you really hit rock bottom, I think, after the L.A. Times job fell apart, yeah. and, and have said you were so depressed that you wondered if you uh, wouldn't turn to, to, to suicide. Yes. Um, my uncle, my mother's brother, was hospitalized at the Milledgeville State Hospital for the Insane. That's what it was called. And um, she and I visited him a few times, and I learned that he not only had depression, but he, but he, he received the kind of electroshock treatment that, that you would saw in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, so I had a genetic predisposition. When I was stripped of my job as publisher of the Los Angeles Times, it was as though it stripped away who I was. It stripped away my my everything. And so I plummeted into a deep, what was later diagnosed, chronic depression. Uh, my wife thinks that it shown a lot of signs of it before then, uh, but I plunged into it. And the only person that happened to be nearby that evening was my son. And when I saw my son that night, I just said, Wyatt, they got me. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, the non-Otis Chandler side of the family uh, got me. And anyway, uh, I, I went into a very, very deep depression. Uh, it was so severe that I took all the guns that I had in the house. I'd always been a hunter and I'd been a fisherman. And I gave them to Jim Boswell, who was a head of a close friend of mine and head of, head of human relations for CNN. It was so deep. And again, I don't think anybody knew except, I really don't think anybody knew just how deep it was. 
that I finally concluded that I needed to check out that my wife would be fine, the children would be fine, they'd be better off without this highly, deeply depressed uh, person. So uh, the original medications that I was getting uh, in Los Angeles and California at UCLA just didn't seem to be helping me come out of this. And uh, anyway, uh, in, in large part, I think, because of my move to Atlanta, the great new opportunity at CNN with Ted Turner, a new psychopharmacologist at Emory, uh, and new medication, that I was able to start coming up and, and out of it. And I devote, I devote much of my time today, particularly after I went public, uh, along with J.B. Fuqua, uh, went with it, Larry Gellistart and I, I devote a lot of my time, energy, and resources to doing all that I can do to try to help get more research about mental illnesses, to do more to uh, help those get to f professionals. I mean, it's very easy to recognize the, 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 symbols, uh, the, the symptoms of depression. I mean, you start pulling back from activities that you once had. You start pulling back from friends uh, that you had. You have this prolonged period of sadness that you're down for a prolonged period of time. You start thinking perhaps about suicide. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, the symptoms of depression are pretty easy to recognize, but what to do about it, you know, and, and, and I'm convinced now you must have very good diagnosis by a professional, a medication that works for you, and finding that medication that works for you is very difficult, trial and error still, and then talk therapy, because each of us has inside of us a canister into which we place our hurt, our anger, our sadness, uh, feelings that go back maybe as I had with my dad as a why wasn't he a more responsible uh, father? Why, why, why didn't he do more to support my mother? I mean, you carry this canister inside of us of stuff, and unless you clean it out periodically through talk therapy, I don't think you ever get well. Well, Tom, I really appreciate your sharing that um, lesson with us because um, of the many accomplishments in your life, your ability to talk publicly about your depression and then try to help those who are dealing with it get over it is really a remarkable thing. Well, I am sorry you asked me about O.J. Simpson, but it was a valid <laughs> question, and I still look back on why did I give O.J. Simpson so much airtime? I bet there are people right now wondering why did I give Donald Trump so much airtime, too. Thanks so much for being with us, Tom. Well, Bill, thank you, and some of those stories are actually true. As we prepared the re-airing of this Tom Johnson interview, which was recorded back in January of 2017, it was chilling to listen again to Tom's story about coping with depression and finding a way out of the blackness in light of the recent news about the suicide deaths of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. Their deaths have sparked a national conversation about depression and suicide prevention. I'm certain that Tom is glad that new attention is being brought to bear on subjects that matter so deeply to him. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Next week, we'll be back with another one of our favorite two-way streets picked from our first four years on the air. Of course, you can listen to any of our shows by going to our website at gpb.org TWS. We've archived all of them there. Our producer is Olivia Reingold. Our engineer is Tyler Morris. 
I'm Bill Nygut. See you again next week for another Two-Way Street.